saved American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For July 24th, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Well, good night, everybody. It sure has been great bringing you 100 episodes. We want to thank our guests, the pro-war people and the anti-war people. What the hell are they doing now? I, I don't know. For the war, against the war, who cares? 100 episodes. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Wow, episode 100. It's a little hard to believe we've reached this milestone, not quite four years after launching the show. It's been an amazing journey so far, and we've covered a lot of interesting ground. And yet it feels like we've just barely scratched the surface of this endlessly fascinating and enormously complex subject, the most important story of our time, energy transition. There are so many more stories to tell so many amazing experts to interview, and so many interesting lessons and insights yet to be learned from all over the world. And frankly, I'm more eager than ever to dig into them and see what we can find. I don't think we will ever run out of material for this show, no matter how long we keep it up. I'm also just incredibly grateful to our subscribers who have made this little dream of ours a reality. Before we started this show, I talked to many smart friends and colleagues in media and energy to get their input on whether or not we should make the leap into launching it, and nearly all of them said no. They thought it would be too difficult to bootstrap it into reality on a small startup budget, that podcasting wasn't a serious business, that we would never have a big enough audience to pay the bills by putting out such wonky material, that we couldn't do it without sponsors or get people to pay for it given all the free energy podcasts that we would still be competing with for the very limited time that people have to listen to podcasts, and so on. Even the podcast industry experts, such as they are, said that, and many of them still say it. They still can't understand how a boutique little show like this could succeed without an audience in the millions, or a big budget, or big-name talent to draw in listeners, or a parent organization with deep pockets to sustain us. And yet, here we are. The startup capital has all been paid back, everyone involved with the show is getting paid, our audience continues to grow steadily, and most importantly, our listeners have proven to be incredibly passionate about and interested in this subject. We didn't know who they were or how to find them when we started, but we believed they were out there somewhere, and that if we could just keep at it, that they would find us. And indeed, that is what has happened. So if you're a subscriber who's been out there spreading the word to your friends and colleagues, allow me to give you a huge thanks from the bottom of my heart for helping to make this show a success. And now there's an even easier way to tell people how to subscribe. Just go to energytransitionshow.com slash subscribe and follow the easy subscription wizard. We've also found a whole new audience in universities, corporations, and other entities who are finding the show so useful that they're now buying campus-wide site licenses so that all of their students and staff can enjoy the show just as they would any other journal. In fact, we've just recently rolled out a new way for them to get a site license. Just go to energytransitionshow.com slash group options to get the process started. 
but how to celebrate this milestone, our 100th episode, appropriately. I thought about it long and hard and finally decided that this was an appropriate time to toot our own horn just a little by interviewing professors at four of the universities that use this show as a teaching tool to ask them about what they're teaching, some of their pedagogical challenges in teaching energy transition, and how they're using the show in their classes. And we've decided to put this show in front of the paywall so that everyone can enjoy it and see how the show is being used to educate the next generation of young energy professionals. Longtime subscribers know that we promise two episodes per month when you subscribe, but that we actually deliver a show every two weeks. So we truly published two extra episodes per year, which we'd like to start making free to all, including non-subscribers. So we're counting this show as one of those extras, what they call Lanyap in New Orleans. First, we'll hear from David Murphy of St. Lawrence University, who was our guest in Episode 7 and 81. Then from Costa Samaras of Carnegie Mellon University, who was our guest in Episode 75. Then from Dustin Mulvaney of San Jose State University, who will be our guest this coming November. And finally, from Sridhar Sitharaman and Adam Warren of the New Advanced Energy Systems Graduate Program at the Colorado School of Mines. Each of these interviews is about 20 to 30 minutes long, so this episode is longer than usual. But I really enjoyed hearing how these teachers are using the show in their coursework to help them teach energy, and I think you will as well. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll note the latest U.S. state to set a 100% clean electricity standard. We'll note several new record low prices for solar projects around the world. We'll consider the implications of a major auto manufacturer worrying aloud about the collapse of car culture and investing in micro-mobility. And we'll have another edition of Coal Death Watch. But now, without further ado, we'll go to the interviews, starting with our old pal Dave Murphy from St. Lawrence University. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Dave, to the Energy Transition Show. Well, thanks, Chris. I'm glad to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're teaching in energy, the courses, and what kind of topics you cover? Sure. I teach three upper division courses in at St. Lawrence University. One's called Renewable Energy. Another one's called Energy Lifecycle Analysis, which is really a lifecycle analysis class, but I focus on energy analysis within that. And then I teach kind of a broader course called Energy in the Environment, which talks about really kind of the intersection or the nexus, if you will, of energy, the environment, and the economy. So we read about steady state economics and, and neoclassical economics, the history of economic theory, and how that is related to energy development and really environmental damage. And the other two courses, Energy Lifecycle Analysis, is a fairly technical class because LCA by design is somewhat quantitative or very quantitative and kind of complicated. And of course, longtime listeners to this show will remember you talking about EROI, which is related to LCA way back in episode seven. That's right. Yeah. So I teach that basically because my research in energy return on investment requires me to do life cycle analysis. I had to learn how to do it. So I was like, you know, this is a great skill for my students to have as well. So develop the course and the renewable energy course is kind of just like a standard undergraduate class in renewable energy where we cover all the major technologies. The one twist with my class is that it's really taught from the perspective of the energy transition as opposed to just a class into each technology. So we spend the first month or so talking about energy transition and really about electricity and electricity grids. Then in the second half-ish of the course, we dive into the technologies and how they're integrated into the transition as well. So those are my upper division courses. I teach a intro to environmental studies for a lower division course, which is a 100 level class. But it's probably also worth mentioning I teach at St. Lawrence University, which is 
a liberal arts college in northern New York State. So these courses are all geared towards kind of a general undergraduate student. You know, our students aren't in engineering programs, so they're not necessarily focused on, you know, a technical degree. So all of my classes have to be relatable, that is, to students that are majoring in environmental studies, maybe with a minor in English. You know, that could be one student. Another student could be a major in environmental studies and combined with math or something like that, right? So it's a very diverse array of students that enter these courses. So that's where all my courses are kind of targeting. Interesting. Some of the other guests that we're having in this episode teach at like engineering schools. There's much more of a focus for their students on the engineering questions. So why do you think your students are taking energy classes, especially if most of them are in liberal arts tracks? I think there's students that are generally interested in renewable energy. They either have solar panels on their home or they see wind turbines. In upstate New York, we've got a few wind farms and some of the students that come from them want to learn more about them. You know, they've just interacted or interfaced in some way with renewable energy and want to know more about it. And so there's curiosity there. And I think a bunch of other students want take it because they see it as a solution to climate change. There's kind of that set up where it's, you know, fossil fuels on one side and renewable energy on the other. It's this dichotomy. And they're like, okay, well, let's go learn about renewable energy. So I think that's really why they're most interested in taking a renewable energy course. The students that take like energy life cycle analysis, I think are more interested in learning something technical and modeling. Yeah. So, and I try to pre-vet those students because if somebody's not quantitatively inclined, that class can become very difficult very quickly for them. Yeah. So you try to vet that a little bit in the beginning. But renewable energy is more kind of just an introductory course to all of these topics. And students are generally just interested in it. They think it's a solution for a lot of the problems we have coming into the class. And, and then we discuss whether it is or not. Your students that are taking the LCA class, they don't have to do it in Fortran, do they? Oh, my gosh. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. No, no, not like I did for my graduate studies when there was plenty of good modeling techniques out there and we were forced to model in Fortran. That was my first and last time modeling in Fortran, so I have not gone back, I'm happy to say, at this point. So what are some of the challenges you discovered in teaching energy? Like, are there certain topics or concepts that students find difficult to understand? Yes. And this is something I've thought a lot about in writing my textbook, which is coming out now called Renewable Energy in the 21st Century. The biggest problem I had when I first started teaching this renewable energy class five years ago, I've been teaching about energy for about 10 years, but this kind of iteration of just like, let's teach about the energy transition. I learned very quickly that students have no idea what electricity is. <laughs> And think about this, right? You want to teach them about the energy transition. You want to teach them how solar panels and wind, this is the goal of the course, right? Is to be like, okay, how does solar and wind and hydro, how is that going to save the world? How is that going to help us in the energy transition? Right. Well, they kind of get that, like, they know that you get energy from the sun, but then, okay, well, you really get electricity. So what's electricity? And then when you want to talk about issues about like, well, what are some of the issues with grid integration? And can you just like rip up a coal plant and put a bunch of solar down and expect everything to be normal. Well, no, you have to do a little bit more work with grid integration issues. But if you want to even approach that topic, the first thing you need to do is make sure the students understand what electricity is, right. understand what alternating current is, and understand how the grid system works. So I found very quickly that one of the biggest challenges I was going to have in this class, and I have one semester to do this, is to try to 
educate them about electricity and how a grid system works and also how it's like managed on the operation side of it. Like there's a bunch of different ways that's done in the United States and it's not necessarily standardized across the U.S. with all the different ISOs and RTOs and in areas that don't even have that. You have more of a utility monopoly model. And I want to do that in a way that's entertaining. It doesn't make their eyes glass over or whatever. So that's the biggest challenge. So in the textbook, I start with a very short introduction to the energy transition using some figures and looking at this connection between economic growth CO2 production and energy production and trying to talk about decoupling those trends. And that's how the energy transition can kind of fit in here. But then we go straight into section two of the book, which is electricity and electric grids. You have to cover that information first yeah. before we talk about wind power because sure. your discussion of that's going to end at the generator, right? right? Right. Because once the electricity is gone, they're not going to have any idea of what happens to it at that point. Right. So that's how I think my teaching on this subject has evolved is that the biggest challenge is that most undergrads really have no idea what energy is, you know, the ability to do work. And they certainly don't know what electricity is and how it's generated. And we don't teach it in K through 12. That's the problem. No, they don't. Exactly. And that's a class into itself, frankly. But in my class, again, at kind of like a generalist undergraduate institution, one of my goals in my class is just to get them excited about the energy transition, that there's hope out there and that there's a growing sector and and that we should be really excited about the opportunities, talk about job development in solar and wind industries. Yeah. So I try to do it as entertaining as possible, but you have to talk about grid management. And the reality is, as you know, a lot of the jobs that are out there, and I think a lot of the cool opportunities that our students may have when they graduate aren't necessarily in, okay, let's develop a new crystal for solar or something, but it's in utilities. It's at the grid level. It's how we can kind of do grid integration and demand management and DRs and all this stuff. And that requires, you know, an introduction to that, I think, at the undergraduate level to kind of like plant the seed. Like, this is really a cool area of development. It's rapidly changing and you have to educate them about that. Yeah. So, what are some of the big misconceptions you find that students have about energy? Mm, That's an interesting question. I think the biggest misconception is that my students generally think that all of the solutions out there are technological, that we can kind of invent our way to a better future. I was just teaching a class called Experiencing the Energy Transition. I've taught this twice now in Copenhagen and Denmark, and we were there for three weeks. And we went on a bunch of field trips over there, seeing, obviously, climbed a wind turbine and checked out wind production. But we also looked at their district heating facilities, where they generate it. They have the new Amabaka facility, which is their huge waste incinerator. Hmm. So they burn all the trash to produce electricity first, but it's primarily to get the waste heat off of that to send out to the city of Copenhagen for district heating purposes. Mm. But on all the field trips that we went on, the goal of most of the organizations, and they would say this in the presentation that they would give our class, was to improve well-being of the people they serve. And I found that, and my students and I reflected upon that after these field trips as being really a big difference between what our perspective here in the United States was and what they're doing in Denmark. And that is that a lot of the policies they're putting forth and a lot of the changes occurring there is occurring with the 
goal of improving the life of the people in Denmark. Right, right. And that is much different than maximizing profitability because there's definitely ways that that incinerator could be operating to maximize profitability, but it's not being operated that way, right? It's operating to improve well-being. That has to be financially solvent. Don't get me wrong. I can't lose a lot of money. But I thought that was really interesting. And if mm. you look at a lot of the changes that have occurred in Denmark from the biking transportations and their entire kind of city plan is emblematic of this, is they now have this strategy in place where they're investing millions of dollars in bridges over canals and things that are only pedestrian and bike friendly. So if you want to go from one end of the city to the other, the fastest way to get there is by bike, not metro and bus or anything else. The fastest way by far to get anywhere is going to be on bike. Now, within reason, right? If you go too right. far, you got to do the metro. But in the goal there, that's not a technological solution. That is a behavioral solution. It's a behavior change. So they're putting in policies that encourage changes in the way people behave. And that is a solution in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that was probably the, I'm not sure if that's a misconception on my students or just something that they don't really fully grasp. And that is that a lot of the solutions that we need to adopt over the next 70 years aren't going to be a technological one. Like the bike isn't a new technology, but putting it in the biking infrastructure to change behavior is a solution. Yeah. And that is something I think that my students were kind of blown away by. Yeah, really interesting. I think there's, just generally speaking, when most people think about the energy transition, they do think about supply-side solutions, right? They think about substituting a wind turbine for a coal plant or whatever. I think there's just far less emphasis or even thinking about the demand side and how our behavior and the way that we go about our daily activities is where the energy demand comes from. <laughs> that totally. you know, you can you can do a lot to reduce the demand for energy pretty simply without changing anything about the technology. Exactly. And yeah, I think that's a big misconception. Yeah. No doubt. Demand does not get enough attention. So let's talk a little bit about how you use the podcast and your teaching. You were actually, I think, the very first professor to license the show to make it part of your class. So why don't you tell us about that? How have students been reacting to it and how are you using it? Yeah, well, obviously I was on the show very early on, so I've been listening from the beginning. And I wanted my students to listen to the show, to be exposed to the material that is being discussed there because it's cutting edge, because it's interesting energy transition material. And it's diverse. There's topics all over from climate change to grid integration to generation. So there's all sorts of different material there. And as you keep pumping out these episodes, there's continually more of it. And it's contemporary. And as you know, this field we're in is rapidly evolving and yeah. it's tough to stay contemporary. Yeah. So I'm leveraging the podcast in that way as a way to keep my class contemporary. I'll start with the challenge I have with the show and integrating it into my course, and then I'll talk about how I've solved that. Okay. The challenge is for me as an undergrad that some of the material in the show is out of reach for them intellectually. Mm -hmm. Because as I said before, they don't really understand electricity. 
I can't assign them a podcast that discusses grin integration before I've talked about it in my course. Right? Right. <laughs> and th so there's got to be some coordination there. And some of the topics, and I don't think it's very many of them, but there are probably a few episodes out there that even at the end of my course are still going to be too much for the average undergraduate student. That said, there are a lot of episodes out there and many of them, most of them I would say are definitely within reach. The way I've integrated it into my course and the way it's integrated into the textbook, really, that I published this year is that I introduce a topic in class, we discuss it in a lecture, maybe two lectures if it's a complicated subject, and then I assign a podcast as homework. So, for example, when we talk about photovoltaics, I'll spend one, probably two lectures talking about photovoltaics, and at the end of the second lecture, I will assign, what is it, episode 72, The Future of Solar, as homework. The students will go home and they'll listen to the episode. And I've also made available for people in the textbook the discussion questions. So I try to assign these kind of more open-ended discussion questions. And I have my students write a paragraph or two in answer to those. And it encourages them to listen a little bit more closely during the podcast as well. Mm -hmm. So then they come to the next class. And now I've got three class periods where I've talked in depth about how photovoltaic panel works. I've also talked about the typical setups at a home where you can be on-grid, off-grid, what net metering is. And now we're going to talk about what the next 20 or 30 years of the solar industry will look like after they've listened to the podcast. And that, I think, all three of those things together is a really broad introduction to solar in the energy transition. Mm -hmm. So I use the Energy Transition Show to kind of add that component. In the textbook, I cover the material about how photovoltaic panel works, what the home setup is, and then I leverage the transition show to talk about how it's to basically put it in the context of the energy transition. So where are we right now? And I do that with a bunch of different topics in the book. Obviously, all the different technologies, if you've done an episode on it, I'll incorporate that. Solar, wind. But then in the electricity chapters, I also pick a few other episodes that deal with grid integration issues, generation issues. So, And I use it in the same way, where I introduce a topic in class, we talk about some of the basic content that you would need to know, and then they really push themselves during the podcast. And they'll come in with some questions from the podcast, and I'll answer those as best I can. But by and large, it's a perfect match because it's not repetitive of the material I've covered in class, and it pushes their understanding of the concepts. Because if they don't understand something in the podcast, they hit pause, they go back to the textbook, they read about the technology a little bit more, and they go back to the podcast and continue listening. Hmm. Oh, and I will also say, as a nod to you, the transcripts were huge because this is not something I expected. But I huh. had a bunch of students, particularly students that are English as second language students that like to read along while they listen. Oh, yeah. And it's very helpful for them when they're going about trying to answer the questions and listen. And then I had other students that just frankly preferred to read huh. than to listen. They absorb content better that way. So it's a very good asset to be producing this in two different ways, the podcast and being able to read it. It's nice. Interesting. Do you find that students also make use of the show notes and the news items that we do in each episode? I do. They absolutely do. I think all my students that listen to an episode will click on at least a few of the links afterward. Hmm. And I also assign a semester-long research project in my class. And this is 
trying to get at this idea of like getting the students excited about the energy transition. I allow them to pick a topic that's in the energy transition, any topic they want and do a deep dive into that topic. And I try to make it somewhat specific. I don't want them to do like, oh, let's do solar energy, right? And then you're going to do a very broad paper on something that's way too broad. So we try to be pretty specific. And the only prerequisite I put on this is that your topic must be discussed at some length in an episode on the Energy Transition Show. I do that <laughs> because I want them to have a base, like a starting point for their research. So if you have an episode on demand response, then they listen to that episode they get some ideas from that episode, but then they also can go to the show notes in the links at the bottom and click on those and kind of jumpstart their research. Not to mention the fact you have a guest on there who's an expert in that area and they can go to that person's bio or company or webpage or whatever and try to figure out what they've published in the past. Right. So my students have done some really cool work in the past. One of them did a paper, it was titled like the Internet of Things or something, but it was basically this security of how, as everything becomes online and automated, how grid security is going to work in the future because people can all of a sudden hack into buildings if they're smart metered and all those things. Yeah. So that one is an early one that was a little more tangentially related to a direct topic on the transition show, but he found a bunch of episodes very helpful. Huh. Yeah. So interesting. So before we wrap up here, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little more about your book and about the way that the podcast is supportive of that? Sure. The textbook's called Renewable Energy in the 21st Century. It's published by uh, Trunity on their True Books platform. And I'm really excited about that. It's an all digital text. And one of the huge benefits of this is that I have something called live cross publishing. So as new data comes out and I want to update figures, I can do it immediately across all of the textbooks that have been adopted out there, which is a nice asset. But yeah. the textbook, as I said before, it's renewable energy in the 21st century, but it's a textbook that's geared for a professor who wants to teach about the energy transition. So it's different from all the other energy textbooks that are out there because it starts with a discussion of the energy transition and what decoupling is and which countries have done that. It has graphs that are in there that are not static, that I've created a bunch of figures in Tableau that are interactive. So students click on them and kind of click through different data to see what the relation is between, for example, GDP and energy consumption in China. And how does that trend look versus the US versus Germany and Denmark? Oh, very cool. Yeah. So it's got like these interactive graphics in it, which also is kind of a newer feature only available on the digital format. Well, yeah, it's hard to do an interactive graphic on paper. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> but then part two of the textbook, as I was talking about earlier, is all dedicated to electricity and electricity grids. We go over everything from like how a generator works in a thermal power plant so that they understand how electricity is created to how it's transmitted to discussing how grid integration works. So what is the grid system? What are the interconnections? How are the interconnections broken down? What's the difference between a coordinating council and an ISO and an RTO? My students love all those questions on the exams, right? When I'm like, you know, define these eight different acronyms and tell me what their meanings are. But it's fundamental for them to know this. I also have a section in there that talks about like, okay, so I'm in New York, so I use the NISO. 
So I'm like, this is a week in the NISO, the New York Independent System Operator, and this is how they get electricity into the grid. Mm-hmm. I actually pull graphics from the ISO page to show this is what the day ahead market looks like. This is what the bid levels are. We talk about the clearing price. Oh, wow. Because all this stuff is really important to the energy transition. A lot of my students, not all of them, as I said, I'm not at a technical school where my students want to create new solar panels. A lot of my students are environmental studies and econ majors who might want to go into finance and might want to go into areas that are related to the energy transition, but aren't on the super technical side, but are on the finance side or on the management side. Well, yeah, they're more interested in how the markets work than how the panel works. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to show them that there's opportunities in that area. So that's why I've included that. So that's kind of like a big section of the book. It's probably five weeks worth of material is just on electricity. There's a first technical chapter on what is energy and what is electricity. And there's a bunch of sections dedicated to that. But then there's a big section on grids and how all of this kind of fits together. The different models of monopoly models versus ISOs and wholesale. So all of that stuff is included. And then in the last section of the book, I go into the standard technologies. So I cover all the major technologies that we find, solar, wind, hydro, biomass. So there's that there as well. But I think that's maybe the big difference is that a standard kind of renewable energy text will just focus on that last stuff, right? We'll go through solar, we'll go through wind, but they obfuscate or they leave out what I think is increasingly more important, which is all of that grid stuff and yeah, the market stuff. The markets was connecting everything, yeah. And so then the podcast fits into the book how? So the podcast basically it fits in through the way in which I teach the course. It's as I said that I think I've rearranged the book based on what I've learned about through the podcast. Huh. But in addition to the textbook and the content that is given to the students and the professor who adopts it, there's a bunch of additional teaching material that I provide. And on the syllabus, I give a sample syllabus. So I go through week by week what I teach. And I have in there all of the episodes for the energy transition show that I give to my students after I'm done reading. So in there, it'll say, we cover photovoltaics this week, and then I assign episode 72, the future of solar. Then we cover wind, and I assign this episode on the future of wind. And then we cover this topic, and then I assign this. And I also give sample discussion questions that go along with that. So it's not integrated into the textbook necessarily directly, but it's integrated into how I teach the class very directly. And that's all this additional material that's available to the professors when they adopt the textbook, but is hidden from the students. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited that this book is coming out. I'm excited that it's on an all digital platform, taking advantage of all this online data and all these other online resources. I think that's super interesting. You know, obviously I talked to a lot of people, including a lot of teachers about their efforts to teach energy transition and a very common reframe is just sort of the dearth of textbooks that are out there. So I think it's awesome that you've produced this. I think it's going to be a huge asset to other people that are trying to teach energy transition. And as usual, I learned a couple things today that I didn't really know about how people are using the show. It had never even occurred to me that the transcripts would be useful to ESL students, for example. So (laughs) that's really cool. Yeah. I think the biggest benefit that my students get from your show is that it excites them while educating them about the energy transition. And I think as a professor, if you're teaching graduate students and their baseline, their content coming into the courses, they already understand a lot of this stuff, then the energy transition show, I think, is 
content straight for your lectures that you yeah. write in there. So it can vary a little bit, but for kind of a general undergraduate students, it's perfect for just increasing their appetite for this information and for really showing them the diverse array of opportunities. Just hearing about who you have on the show and who is talking, you know, is it somebody from a government institution? Is it somebody from a think tank? Is it somebody from this place? And then looking at their backgrounds, right? They're not all engineers, for example. So, right, right. And yeah, sometimes you have the, some of the more journalist types on that talk about that. I'm like, see, you can do this awesome research and just kind of get it out there on the web. Like when you had Gavin Bate out and some other people. So sure, it's really cool for them to see that. Awesome. Well, this has really been fun to catch up, Dave. Congratulations on your new book. We'll definitely have some links to that in the show notes. And keep on rocking, man. I love the way that you're out there getting people excited and helping students see a path for themselves to work on energy transition, because that's what I'm all about. You know, let's mobilize an army here. Yeah, I'm with you. Thanks so much for all you're doing. And congratulations on 100 episodes. I know, it's amazing, right? Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thanks very much. That was David Murphy of St. Lawrence University. And now, on to our interview with Costa Samaras of Carnegie Mellon University. So let's bring him back to the conversation. Welcome back to the Energy Transition Show, Costa. Chris, it's really an honor to be back with you on The Transition Show. It's a wonderful program, and congratulations on making it to episode 100. (laughs) Pretty amazing. Well, thank you. And I also have to thank you for being the one to finally encourage us to take that leap into offering site licenses, because it was at your urging that we finally did that, and Carnegie Mellon was our first site licensee. So thank you very much for encouraging us to make that happen and helping to make it happen. Oh, we're grateful. Our library sees the value in this type of curated expert content, and we're glad that all of our students on campus have access to the Energy Transition Show. Awesome. Well, why don't you tell us about your teaching in energy? Like, tell us about your program, the courses, and the topics that you're teaching. So I'm an associate professor in the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department at Carnegie Mellon University, and I teach courses that all touch on energy in one way or another. I teach a class for the first year students. It's called Exploring Civil Environmental Engineering, Infrastructure and Environment in a Changing World. That's a long title. It's better than kind of like a 100 level title, but Mm. that is something where these are brand new students. They're 18, 19 years old. They're interested in engineering. They don't know if they're going to major in civil engineering or electrical engineering. So I get a whole bunch of different types of folks in there. And so I teach that undergrad class. That class has a an energy unit and a climate unit that we'll talk about. I also teach a graduate class that I developed called Climate Adaptation for Infrastructure. And I teach another graduate class in our energy science, technology, and policy master's program called Energy Utilization in Demand. So these are all pretty serious technical type classes. You know, you've got engineers and graduate students. Mostly engineers, but we definitely have policy folks basic scientists, some business folks. We try to make our classes accessible to the broader community because we think it's a really important topic. And of course, they're based in an engineering college, so they start from an engineering base, but we bring in lots of policy and economics. So why do you think students are taking these energy classes? Like what's really driving their interest in it? Well, two of my classes, I have to say, Chris, they're required, so they (laughs) they have no option. But I would like to think that they would take them anyway, because I'm finding that today's students are really interested 
in energy transitions and sustainability and want to work on engineering and policy solutions that improve people's lives and address climate change. I think I've noticed a big shift over the last several years about the desire for engineering students to affect real change and do great things for the world. It's always been there, but now I think it's becoming more evident and more pronounced. Hmm. So at the beginning of each semester, I send an email to the students in my classes and the students that I advise, and I let them know about important resources, about what they should be learning and classes that we're offering here in energy and climate. And I include several podcasts. And of course, Energy Transition Show is at the top of my list. And as you said, now all of our students have access to Energy Transition Show, and that has changed the way that I'm thinking about classes for next year. Interesting. Well, yeah, why don't you talk about that? Like, how are you using the podcast? I've been using the Energy Transition Show in my teaching both up until this point as required readings, I guess it would be required listenings, hmm. and supplemental information on course topics where students would like to learn a little bit more. A lot of students like to dive deeper beyond the stuff that we're doing in class. A perfect example of a required listening, though, is in my energy utilization and demand course. This is a graduate course, required core course in our energy science, technology, and policy program. And it introduces the students to the concept of estimating and projecting energy demand from different sectors. We get into energy data. We go through a lot of IEA and EIA information so that they're comfortable in using and estimating their own models. And so one of the classes is on the rebound effect or the Jevons paradox, something that you all have talked about before and stuff that we've talked about a lot in the energy community. Oh, yeah. This is the concept where if energy services become cheaper, people will use more energy. And the reality is more complex. So we walk through in this class the literature and do examples and do some exercises based of observed and modeled rebound effects. And I'm lucky that one of my longtime collaborators, Professor Inesh Azevedo, is an expert on the rebound effect. So I've been assigning her paper, uh, Consumer End Use Energy Efficiency and Rebound Effects, for years. And I'll make sure that I get that to you so you can put it in the show notes, Chris. Great. But so as it happens, you know, as I've been assigning this paper and then we've been going through exercises in class. But Professor Azevedo was a guest of the Energy Transition Show on episode 86. Yes, she was. So now I assign both her paper and the podcast as required readings before the class lecture. Oh. So the students respond really well. So the podcast gives them this additional nuance and context on a really complex topic coming right from the expert in the field. And uh -huh. I think that's something that's really valuable is that there are people behind all these analyses that we read all the time. And to have the author of these explain their work and explain the limitations and the nuance in their own voice is really valuable. And the students really like that. Hmm. And in many of these classes, I have a small online quiz on the readings before the day's class. And so by doing that and assigning the readings and then assessing them on some of these concepts, I can then use the class time to work through examples and have group exercises rather than me just regurgitate the readings. And so what I found is that the students are doing better on these pre-class assessments when I have assigned the podcast than just assigning the paper alone. And so this is reinforcing that they're getting the core concepts. They're coming to class ready to kind of dive deeper. That way I'm not just telling them what they should have been reading. 
Interesting. I'm going to add a bunch more required listenings this next year. And I'd love some advice from you or from anybody out there. I'm thinking about episode seven on energy return on investment. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking a lot about some of the higher geek rating episodes on power markets, mm. oil markets, and others. You know, these are topics where it's not that easy to find a PDF of <laughs> what you want to find, right? I mean, so if somebody wants to explain PERPA or if somebody wants to explain capacity markets, yeah. like I've been looking, right? I mean, sometimes you can find some stuff, but to have, hey, here's a podcast. We're going to be talking about these concepts and modeling these. It's really, really important. And I'm looking forward to seeing what happens this next year in that class. I also have a lecture, of course, on transportation energy. And I provide episode 75 when I was a guest on the Energy Transition Show. But Chris, I do that as a supplemental rather than a required reading. They have to listen to me all semester and they should get a break once in a while. <laughs> like I, I want to cut them some slack. <laughs> Now, the subscription really opens up new possibilities. And so for my first year students, these are these 18 and 19 year olds. I always include a unit on energy and a unit on climate change science, mitigation and adaptation. I think it's really critical that engineers and really everybody graduate college with a basic working knowledge of energy and climate. And it's surprising that that's not the case. And even in engineering schools around the country, you know, folks will get thermodynamics and they'll get kind of basic concepts. But if you were to say how much oil is used in the electricity sector, they might not have any idea that it's basically zero. Mm -hmm. And that's just the basics. Kind of starting from there, what are the sources and uses of energy? How are markets designed? What are the externalities? What are the solutions to climate change? These aren't topics that are generally covered by design in traditional engineering undergraduate curricula. And so what we're trying to do is change that. So for this year, I'm, on my energy unit, I always assign the Department of Energy's energy literacy packet. Mm -hmm. It's pretty basic, but it helps get the kind of concepts together. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking about assigning episode 81, principles of energy transition, maybe episode 14, China's energy future, or episode 12, energy access for the developing world. It'd be great to have somebody like Professor Michael Weber or Professor Paulina Jaramillo or somebody else on Chris to do kind of energy 101. Because that's what I was thinking about. Like, where is energy for the brand new entrant to energy transition? If I want to start from zero, that would be a nice episode to have. That's a great suggestion. I will definitely make a note of that. And so for the climate unit, I assign the U.S. Global Change Research Program's climate literacy packet and the National Climate Assessment. So both of those are, are really valuable resources. I assign specific chapters from the National Climate Assessment. But this year, I'm going to also assign a bunch of podcasts from the Climate Science Series. I think that that is a really neat sequence. That, it looked like it kind of came together by accident, Chris. You know, you have all of these episodes kind of scattered throughout, really diving deep into climate science and climate evaluation. And so episode 36, climate science overview, 48, teaching the carbon cycle, 63, pathways of deep decarbonization. You didn't realize that I memorized all your episodes. <laughs> so I, I'm sitting here with my jaw hanging open. <laughs> so the energy transition show was designed for a niche audience. I am very much in that niche audience, but I think it's broadening now to much wider uh, and wider appeal. I'm really glad about that. And so designing climate solutions, and there's a whole bunch. I mean, so yeah. I'm going to put a bunch of these as supplemental readings for my climate adaptation class. So we want to teach them about the science, about mitigation, and about adaptation. And in my adaptation class, I don't think that there's any 
adaptation episodes yet. And so I'm happy to come back on and talk about how climate affects the energy system. Or mm. I, of course, Chris, I can recommend some other great folks. Folks have heard enough about me. Those are great suggestions. And, you know, I just love hearing your thoughts about how to use the show because, you know, a lot of times I'm just kind of flying by the seat of my pants. I don't really have a grand plan for all the topics I'm going to cover, you know, long into the future. I do have a massive file of suggestions that listeners have sent in or that I've thought up to work through, but it's just sort of an evolving thing. The 10-part series on climate science, that was pretty well planned and structured, and I did kind of spread those episodes out because I didn't want there to be like just a solid wall of climate science episodes for those who weren't interested in that sort of thing. But it is, I agree that even as I'm putting the show together, I'm also out there looking for where is that key 101 primer that I can put in the show notes or whatever, and oftentimes not finding it. And I'm like, okay, I guess I got to write it. I guess I got to make that into an episode. And so I'm glad to hear that the geek rating is useful in helping you select what's out there so far. We've also recently implemented a new way to search and filter the episode. So it's easier to find geek rating that you're looking for or do things chronologically or however you want to look for them. I am curious if you or your students are also finding the show notes and the interactive transcripts useful. I think the show notes are a huge bonus and benefit to both the students and me. Hmm. I always hear kind of somebody say, well, I did this in this report, and then I can go into the show notes and find it. That's really, really helpful. Hmm. I think that what is important about the transcript. And I know that some podcasts have transcripts and some don't. I'm really grateful that Energy Transition Show has transcripts because this is something that a lot of teachers might not be thinking about. When we assign content, especially audiovisual content, we want to make sure that it's accessible to everybody. And so I won't assign a video unless it has closed captioning because I want to make sure it's accessible to everybody. So what the transcript does is enable that accessibility for folks who would rather read it or need to read it. But it also enables folks who don't want to listen to our voices, just read it on their phone, on the bus when they're coming in. So having multiple pathways is really important for accessibility, as well as for reaching that student who's not going to download and listen to something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow, that's cool. So what are some of the challenges you've discovered as you're teaching energy transition? Like what sort of topics or concepts do students find difficult to understand? I think that students are arriving as undergrads and sometimes even master's students without a lot of this background and context that the Energy Transition Show provides. And that's really because unless you purposely sought this information out or you took a dedicated energy class, either in high school or undergraduate, a lot of this information is not part of what is generally taught, which is kind of... Yeah, it's know, not part of the K through right? 12 curriculum, right? Right. I mean, the idea that... I'll say this to the first year students, it's like, what's a kilowatt hour? Right? Right. <laughs> or what is an example of something that uses a kilowatt hour? And they'll kind of look at me and I'll say, all right, well, if we turned our microwave on and our microwave is a kilowatt and we run it for an hour, we have some pretty burnt popcorn, probably a fire, so we shouldn't do that. <laughs> but you know, that's a kilowatt hour. And even that basic level of knowledge. Yeah is not out in the general public. I also kind of quiz them. I'm like, how much do you think that costs? And I'll get like a dollar, you know, dollar 50. Right. Say, no, no, 16 American cents, yeah. or whatever. And so the notion of where we get energy, 
how we use energy, how much it costs, what are the costs to the environment, what are the solutions for sustainable transition. All of that is not in the general education curriculum, either K through 12 or in undergraduate or even graduate, unless we make it deliberate. And so that's why both the challenge and the exciting part is kind of opening up people's minds to this topic that affects their everyday life, as well as, you know, the lives of every generation of humans after us, but through objective fact-based sources that we can point to on the web that we can give them the knowledge that they need to make their own models and decisions. Yeah. It still amazes me that we don't teach anything about energy in K through 12. You know, I mean, you've got engineering students showing up to your class, not knowing what a kilowatt hour is. I mean, imagine if they showed up and they didn't know what an inch or a gallon was, right? Or a liter or a centimeter. I'm still <laughs> holding out for the transition to metric. Hey, I'm an American man. Come on. Yeah, I, I got it. I got it. I got it. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I think it's changing. A lot of students are more interested in this than before. But yeah, these are important parts, just like you wouldn't know the water cycle you get taught in science class or whatever. This is something that needs to change across the U.S., introducing fact-based energy and climate lessons through the K through 12 and undergraduate secondary education. Do you find that students show up with any particular misconceptions? I'm particularly here thinking about the propaganda that they're no doubt hearing constantly, you know, that's emanating from the fossil fuel industry. Do they show up to your class thinking that wind and solar can't do anything because they're intermittent or that nuclear is the only way to do energy transition or, you know, that uh, carbon pricing is the only way to approach energy transition or things of that sort? You know, I think that that's one level beyond where most folks are showing up. I think huh. that if you ask, you know, high school students or general population, what makes electricity? I think a lot of them are going to say oil. There's a lot hmm. of misconception in the United States that says that for some reason they believe that if there's an oil crisis, then the lights are going to go out. And that is not the case because oil is not used in electricity markets, except for Hawaii and Puerto Rico and the United States. It's used at generator level at the top of the supply curve. But, you know, on the basic level, folks associate oil with energy right. much more than they associate natural gas, coal, nuclear, solar, wind, or whatever. So I don't think that they're even really thinking about the energy generation mix. They're mostly thinking about kind of oil and oil imports and what that means. Yeah. And when we get down into it, then we get to sustainable energy versus sustainable electricity, you know, power versus energy capacity factors. Of course, that's the kind of the next barrier to break through. But I also think that folks will get kind of freaked out when you say there's 9,000 grams of CO2 emitted from a gallon of gasoline, right? That's a lot. Yeah. And, you know, drive a mile, it's 300 grams of CO2. And so over the course of a year, drive 10,000, 15,000 miles. That's also something that starts to connect with folks is what of their activities are emitting how much carbon or how much CO2. Mm -hmm. And so that's also important just for the general public to understand is, you know, what are my sources of energy? What are the impacts of these energy uses? And what am I going to do about it to make it better? Yeah. Well, that reinforces to me a message I've been getting fairly consistently, which is that it really would be helpful if we put out more sort of one-on-one level 
episodes of the podcast from time to time just to really help folks kind of get to that first step in understanding because there really isn't a lot of other ways to get that information. And I've been reluctant to go there because I kind of felt like people who subscribe to this show probably know that stuff already and I don't want them to be bored or to feel like, you know, they're just wasting their money on stuff they already know. But on the other hand, there really are a lot of folks out there who need a way to kind of get started. We need to help them get to that first rung on the ladder, as it were. Yeah. And you know, Chris, the kids, they love the podcasts. So this is, <laughs> this is the way we're going to reach them. And maybe we could break them up into either Instagram posts or maybe TikToks. <laughs> oh, I'm trying God. to think what else the kids are into now. No way. <laughs> <laughs> But at least, you know, maybe it's a 15-minute kind of dive in Energy 101 series that mm. is like, here's a concept and here's what it means. Mm. Because a lot of this is not in any textbook. That's right. We try not to use textbooks in general because they're expensive and we want to make sure that students have access to open source materials. But, you know, a lot of the stuff that's in the Energy Transition show, as I said before, it's not something that I can go and buy a book that gets it all into. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, I've learned so many things in this short little conversation about how people are using the show and how you're using the show and how I ought to be thinking about future content development. So this has been really helpful. Thank you, Costa. I appreciate, of course, all the opportunities to talk with you, Chris, at any time. I always learn something when I'm listening to the Transition Show. Awesome. It's a really fantastic resource for everybody. But I have a question. So when you get to episode 1000, <laughs> will it be a K Transition Show or an M Transition Show? Which is really important <laughs> to think about. When you get to episode 1000, please have me back on. I'm looking forward to all the future episodes of the Transition Show. I will definitely have you back for episode 1000, should we be so lucky to get that far. And it will definitely be a K, not an M. Okay, yeah. very good. Yeah, A plus for Chris Nelder. <laughs> However, I want you to know that I still draft my show notes in Calibri. I did notice that. And you know what? Everybody <laughs> makes mistakes every now and then. So all is forgiven. <laughs> oh, funny. Hey, thanks, Costa. Great talking with you again. Likewise, Chris. Talk to you soon. That was Costa Samaras of Carnegie Mellon University. And now our interview with Dustin Mulvaney of San Jose State University. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Dustin, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me, Chris. So I'm very excited to hear about your teaching in energy. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the program, the course, and some of the course topics that you're teaching? Sure thing. So I teach in an environmental studies department, and we're one of the oldest environmental studies degree programs in the country. We were founded with about six others shortly after Earth Day in 1970. Oh, wow. And our environmental studies department was actually founded by a physicist. So he was always interested in energy, and we've always had a strong current of energy studies within environmental studies in our department, which is a little different than many other departments. So there's been students getting a bachelor's degree in environmental studies with a focus on energy since about the 1970s. So the courses I teach in that curriculum are Energy in the Environment, which is a class that people across the San Jose State campus are taking to fulfill an earth sciences prerequisite, which I think is great that we're letting students learn about the world, 
we're asking them to learn about the world and here we are giving them an opportunity to learn about their energy system and how they're connected to it. And I think that that's kind of a main facet of energy literacy that I try to accomplish in that energy and the environment class. I also teach two other courses in that energy curriculum. One is called Solar Energy Analysis. And that class focuses on the policies, economics, technology, waste, land issues, chemical issues around the solar industry. So I try to bring my own expertise as a researcher in that space into the classroom. And students learn about all the facets that are connected to solar energy. And finally, the class that I take and treat somewhat as a capstone for the energy studies students, which now there's a minor in our environmental studies program. It used to be a concentration in energy in environmental studies degree. Now it's a minor in sustainable energy that's attached to that environmental studies degree. That gives us a little more flexibility with, you know, letting an engineering student get a minor in sustainable energy, which is kind of cool. It kind of makes it a little more portable across campus. But sustainable energy strategies is a class where students put kind of their energy curriculum all together here. They've taken my energy and environment class at this time. They've taken an energy policy course, green building class, a solar home design course. And boy, I might be missing one more class, but that is about the suite of classes they come prepared to. And sustainable energy strategies is very project based. So I have them kind of thinking about a particular research conundrum in energy transition studies. And that's kind of one of the themes here is how do we transition away from impactful energy systems to ones that have less impacts as we all are focused on climate change, but other kinds of impacts as well are kind of themed through the course. Let me stop there. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. And I'm getting the impression that those different courses are going to appeal to different people for different reasons, right? Like some of them sound a little more oriented toward the engineering type students and some are more maybe toward the more general interest or liberal arts type students. So what's your perception of that? Like, why do you think your students take these energy classes? What makes them interested in it? I think a couple things are going on that are attracting people to energy at San Jose State. And one of them is just being here in Silicon Valley. I think that there is a bit of enthusiasm about technical solutions. And I try in my classes, you know, talk about policy elements and the technical elements and the behavioral and social elements that are also kind of bound up in these questions around energy transition. But by and large, these students are really enthusiastic and I think they feel like they could work on energy as a career. I think in my energy and environment class, I make the impression on them that you know it affects their lives every day in beneficial ways and in negative ways, in ways that other communities, for example, are experiencing negative impacts from energy systems. And they're really passionate about that. And I think the other thing, obviously, is climate change mm-hmm. is kind of the overarching question that many of my environmental studies students are coming in with. So having an opportunity to work on that you know, the energy space seems very solutions oriented right now. And I think students are attracted to that for whatever reasons. Well, for good reasons, right? We want solutions. But that I think is one of the other drivers here is kind of how do we solve this overarching problem we have called climate change? And are there solutions that are readily at hand that I could work on? And I think students come into it seeing opportunities there. 
Yeah. So what are some of the challenges you've discovered as you're teaching this stuff? Like what kinds of topics or concepts do students find difficult to understand, do you think? It depends. So in my classes, as you mentioned, some students are coming in stronger in policy or social sciences, and some students are coming in with a bit of strength already in preparation and engineering. So different students struggle on different things, of course. I think the technical students tend to think that they can just run off and solve the problem and come back with it. And they don't see some of the behavioral or institutional issues that are also connected to our environmental problems. Whereas the students who come in with a little preparation in policy or political science or some other area where the social institutions and social relationships are foregrounded, those students have issues that we talk about all the time, like power and energy, switching units, partly because they're not converting units all the time, so it's not part of their everyday locomotion, so to speak. <laughs> so, Well, as someone who studied English as an undergrad and found myself in multiple technical careers, I certainly struggled with that unit business for quite a while when I was getting into energy. It's quite complicated. I mean, for one thing, as a person taking an English language focus to it, I just really struggled with the way that the units are stated so inconsistently. Yeah. Just the way that they're using the abbreviations and, you know, the way that it kind of switches between English and metric. And you just sort of have to learn it by rote, ultimately. Like, it doesn't really make sense. Yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time, actually, in all my classes, I come back to this point, you know, just making sure that we have some basic understanding of that fundamental power versus energy difference. Yeah. And... You know, I always point out to my students how crazy it is that the kilowatt hour has no time dimension in it, even though it's called the kilowatt hour, right? It's like, there is no time dimension. Why are we calling a unit that has no time dimension anything to do with time? And of course, we know why that is. But when I emphasize it over and over again, I think they start to hear it. But that's just familiarity and getting used to it. But to answer your first question, you know, the challenges of teaching in interdisciplinary space are multiple. Mm-hmm. And when you're bringing students that have different backgrounds and different levels of preparation, that always becomes the number one challenge. And in the sustainable energy strategies class where I've been using your podcast, that's a very project oriented class where I have students take on certain responsibilities that do play to their strengths. They are supposed to, in the class, as a collective project, transform California's economy to one that is 80% lower greenhouse gas emissions. And they have a project, and that's by 2050, they got to make that happen. And they're all working on different elements of that. And you need people that know the policy ins and outs. And you need people who can crunch some numbers to figure out how many batteries you need in this little area over here. Mm. So making sure that they're working as a team. And that's the other emphasis I have in the sustainable energy strategies class is teamwork. Because when they get out in the real world, they're going to be working on teams and being able to figure out how to work as a team and communicate across disciplinary boundaries is something that I'm trying to have them bring to the fore in this class. That does sound like a smart strategy. I was going to ask you if you like try to pair up sort of the policy people with the engineering people and let them support each other. So I appreciate that. So how have you been using the podcast in your class? Well, the way that I have it set out right now is I assign it just like I assign my readings. So in my syllabus, they'll scroll through it 
And I've tried to make it stand out by putting listen in front of it so that they know they have something they have to go off and find a different device to consume, so to speak. So I put it in the readings and students in this class, they're asked to basically give the synopsis for a reading. So some student will get assigned one of the podcasts and give a a summary of what is often a very complex set of topics that you cover in a show. So I asked them to kind of hit on one or two key themes that were emphasized throughout. So I use it as almost like a supplemental reading, Hmm. but also a conversation piece. So, you know, I'm not using the podcast themselves to introduce the ideas. I'm using my lectures and some readings, but I think the richness of the conversation is really, really worth the students having access to. And that's really was my initial motivation here was just getting students fluent in these conversations and hearing two geeks nerded out about some energy topic (laughs) (laughs) in some place somewhere in the world. And I think you guys do a really great job of that. So a lot of preparation I know goes into your show. So yes, indeed it comes through because students are, I think that they're listening to it. They're engaging with it and, I think they, they do find value in having that exposure. Huh, that's interesting. And the enthusiasm. There's so much enthusiasm yeah. from the guests and you on this topic. I mean, that in and of itself is really important mm-hmm. in an educational environment, getting students like fired up about something. And, right. You know, it, sometimes it's odd to think about it, but, you know, sometimes talking about transmission towers can get students fired up. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> I know. There's a lot of topics that if you just sort of read the title, you're just like, wow, that really sounds dry. But then when you get into it, it's like, oh, there's actually some pretty interesting stuff. At least there is for me. Yeah. You know, I've gotten a lot of feedback from various professors who are using the show and, you know, people who would like to use the show that maybe the topics that we're covering or the way that we're covering them is just too advanced, especially for people who are just starting to kind of get into energy. And let's face it, you know, we do an abysmal job of teaching students anything about energy before college, right? So most people come to the subject of energy really not knowing anything. Like they all know what feet and inches and kilometers are. They all know what gallons are, all that kind of stuff, but they don't know what a kilowatt is. And they've never had to think about it. They've never been taught anything about it. They don't know the first thing about how the grid works. They don't know anything about the fuels. They don't know anything because we don't teach it. And I've sort of been loath to try to do too much sort of on the 101 kind of energy level, just because I don't think there's that many people who would want to subscribe, you know, especially to pay for a subscription to a show that is very basic like that. But on the other hand, sometimes I feel like maybe that's really what the market needs. So I sort of wonder where to pitch the show. And that's why we have the geek rating so that people can sort of choose their own adventure. And of course, now we've got a feature on the site so you can actually sort and select and filter shows by geek rating. So that helps you find the stuff that's maybe most appropriate to your knowledge level. Yeah. But what are your thoughts about that? The geek rating to me is some of them I look at and I'm like, yep, that was definitely, <laughs> I was in the weeds on some electrical concepts that, <laughs> yeah. that not everybody would be completely familiar and fluent in. However, I think you're right that you know people don't necessarily want the basics either. And for me, this is fitting perfectly with the level of expertise of my students at this point. Because hmm. remember, these students now have had four or five courses in this and they're 
just getting hungry on the edges and hearing about some of these ideas and their other classes with some of their other instructors. So having access to an expert, and I think that that's the real great benefit of your podcast is that there's an expert here who spends every day of their life on a calendar year thinking about a certain question or might be spending 10 years thinking about a question. And here you are talking with them about that. And I think that that, that, is the value of what you're delivering here. And I think it has tremendous value as, like I said, kind of a supplemental piece to really get students familiar and comfortable with conversations about this stuff. It's one thing to have a YouTube video and say, here's energy, here's power, and here's how you convert the units over and real basic stuff or advancing up the level to talking about how a substation works or whatever that could be. And that has value. I think there's a lot of that. Maybe it's not centralized in a good spot, but you know, if you can bring these conversations that you're already having into a already somewhat developed or curated material on the basics of energy, I think that's what I'm doing. And that's why I'm using it that way. Cause I do think that it has value in the way that it is, and I wouldn't suggest you do anything different, I guess, is what I'm saying. Okay. Have you gotten any particular responses from the students to the podcast that would be helpful for me as a producer to think about? Nothing specific. Okay. Here, we're being always told to be innovative in our teaching strategies. PowerPoint's boring. We're being told to flip our classrooms, like basically come up with our lecture slides and post them and make the classroom more interactive. Hmm. And my initial interest in putting podcasts in this all together was saying, Hey, students got to get around like from place to place on a bus sometimes or walking place to place. What better idea to have someone chatting about energy in their ears while they're walking from place to place. There has to be some pedagogical value to that. And I've never assessed that. So I'm making assumptions there and I think that they're good assumptions, but again, it requires that the students are actually listening to it. Yeah. You know, students, they have to do summaries of a podcast. And in that summary, they're obviously engaged with the content. Right. But other than that, I don't have a good sense because they're not being assigned anything specific. Right. Well, you know, I've also heard from some people, like some people are visual learners, like they just don't like to listen. You know, they just rather read a transcript. And then vice versa, there are people who learn really well by listening or who actually just got a an email from a listener the other day saying that he's visually impaired and he really finds it super helpful to be able to listen instead. Yeah. So yeah, people use it in different ways. And I'm always just looking for intel on that, how people use the show. The show notes also, if I could just add, Oh yeah. The show notes also are really, really strong because in this class, the students are in different teams. So the class is basically, as I said earlier, they have to reduce carbon emissions in the California economy by 80% by 2050. And I have them all in a transportation team collectively. And they're all on sub teams in there. One's on the ethanol team, a biodiesel team, a fuel cell team, and a electric vehicle team. And they literally build a wells to wheels calculator. Hmm. And it has to be for the entire fleet in 2050. So they Hmm. make all these assumptions on these different teams. And, you know, the biodiesel people can't get all their emissions down, but the electric people can. And they got to figure out how much electricity demand does that mean? Because they're on another team as well. So they're all on a transportation team, but they're all on an electricity team. 
there's actually two electricity teams that compete against each other. They both have to design an electricity system using information from the wells to wheels calculator about how much electricity demand and all that. So but my, where I'm going with this is that there are so many niche little questions that students have about who are the experts on this? What are the most current research papers on this? And the show notes have a lot of that hmm. right there prepared and curated already for them. Right. So I think that that is another value that I see, at least in assigning some of these podcasts. And you don't object that I've made up my own consistent format for the citations? No, not at all. Not at all. No, I mean, it, you know, on the internet, it just needs a hyperlink, right? Oh my gosh. I struggled so much with that when I was first starting to produce the show because, you know, you have researchers send you their citations and it's like there's so many different formats out there that people use, so many different conventions for like, which piece of information comes first? Are they separated by periods or commas, you know, and so on and so forth. And I, I was just tearing my hair out trying to rationalize it all. And finally, I was like, you know what? Screw it. As you say, this is the internet age. All you really need is a hyperlink. I don't really care how it looked in one card catalog or another 40 years ago. Let's just get the basic information down and put it in a consistent format and call it a day. Yeah, you just got to hope the URLs don't expire. <laughs> <laughs> this is <laughs> true. you have a whole other message. But you have the Wayback Machine. You have the Wayback Machine. Thank God for the Wayback Machine. Man, that thing has been so helpful to me. So I guess for one final question, I'd be curious what sort of misconceptions that you find students have about energy. Are there any common ones that students come in, ideas they're just carrying around in their heads where they're just confused about something? No, I think it goes right back to what you had mentioned earlier. I I can't think of anything specific, but I think the units issue just is what students have a difficult time with. I mean, Mm -hmm. electricity itself is kind of hard, I think. You know, I spend a lot of time talking about induction and the basic ideas behind magnets, magnetic fields and electric fields and vice versa. And that's actually a really hard concept for all of us to get. Yeah. Getting our heads wrapped around this thing called electricity and yeah. the right hand rule and which direction does the electric field move if the magnetic field is moving a certain way. And to know that that's like a pattern and that that is underlying most of how we're getting electricity today, that one law of spinning magnets around copper coil. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that on the one hand is amazing. It's also very hard to explain how electricity works. Yeah. So units generally across the board are very difficult to moving between units, but the concept of electricity and charge carriers and Voltage versus current is a little easier to explain, but a lot of the electrical concepts are, I think, very, very, very challenging. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's just because that's not what the human brain has really evolved to think about necessarily, right? Electricity was just lightning in the sky, nothing else. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's hard to understand something that you can't ever see or feel or touch or sense in any way. I mean, it's such an abstract thing in some ways. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I really like... This last time I taught my energy in the environment class, now that's that general ed course that I teach that people from across the university take. And I teach one section and we have a lecturer who teaches four or five sections of the same exact class. So the class has gotten increasingly popular across campus, which is exciting. Hmm. But Richard Rhodes' book on energy, I found to be awesome on some of these ideas. Like, 
I've never thought it was possible to make the functioning of a steam engine seem actually like it could come to life and help students understand the harnessing of mechanical energy with fossil fuels. Understanding, you could show them pictures of steam engines and say, this is what Watts and Newcomb's engines look like and blah, blah, blah. But somehow he writes in such a way that really brings those engines to life. And I think that's been one of my new motives with teaching is instead of trying to teach students so many concepts, it's to expose them to the good writers, the good thinkers, and the good speakers. That's why I assigned this podcast, you know, the people who are thinking about these things, because in some ways that's the most important thing when you're teaching is getting that engagement. And sometimes it takes a good writer or a good speaker or a good thinker to really pull that out. So yeah, that's what I'm going for. Well, speaking of which, you have a couple of books of your own that you are producing this year. And we're going to actually do an episode with you in the fall about the Energy Transitions book. So just to wrap us up here, why don't you go ahead and pimp those? Yeah, I'm very excited to have gotten really good reviews so far on my solar power Innovation, Sustainability, Environmental Justice book with the University of California Press. So that's been very rewarding to have that finally in one volume and I don't have to write any of that anymore, about <laughs> much of that anymore. Uh-huh. And then I have a textbook that just went into final review and is going in for layout and such with Paul Grave McMillan and that's called Sustainable Energy Transitions socio-ecological dimensions of decarbonization. And then that book is somewhat modeled after my class that I've been talking about, sustainable energy strategies. The goal of that book is to bring into contact with each other some of the kind of back of the envelope type energy textbooks that are pretty good, but often don't have social science in them. There's a tendency for textbooks, you know, they'll do their back of the envelope estimates, their unit conversions, etc. But then they say, here's policy and here's economics. And there you go. Right. Policy, economics and energy modeling. And that's all you need. And there's all this great stuff in anthropology and geography and sociology, psychology, that is really, really important. And that's why I love that last podcast on sustainable transportation that I heard on your show. Hmm. And I was like, that geek rating is very low, but that's misleading because those are some of the most important questions that were being dealt with in that podcast because they're fundamental questions. They weren't like, how do we technically make this electric car work here in this particular electric grid? They were like, how are we going to get around? How are we going to make our places more mobile? You know, what temperature is actually comfortable for us to live in? Right. And those are really, really, really you know, foundational questions that we need to all be having a conversation about. And I don't feel like they get justice necessarily in kind of the modeling economics policy universe because they actually are broader questions. And so that's the purpose of the textbook is to try to bring an interdisciplinary problem oriented approach to thinking about energy transitions and what are the different conversations and how do we move them forward? Yeah. Well, I guess different people look at the geek rating in different ways. I always think of it as just sort of a metric of how esoteric the material is. And I felt like Debbie Hopkins was presenting material that almost anyone could understand. So, you know, no matter how much background they had in the topic. So that's why it has kind of a low geek rating, not because I thought it's unimportant. Of course, I think 
all the ideas from all my guests are important. That's why I have them on the show, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 100% <laughs> there. But I thought that was a great conversation. So yeah, thanks was... again. I can't wait to reassign that. <laughs> now I got to start figuring out which ones to replace. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to having you on the show later this fall to talk about your Energy Transitions book. I mean, as you and I have talked about before, there's actually a dearth of textbooks out there that really focus on energy transition, or at least there has been until recently. So I'm very excited to see that one come out. I think it'll be useful to a lot of people. I appreciate that. I I hope it's useful. I certainly look forward to assigning it in my classes, which is really where the main audience is my students, because I've been really struggling myself to find the right textbook for mm -hmm. my own students. And this is finally a packaged way of delivering the content that I wanted to. Yeah. Well, I think we can leave it there. Thank you, Dustin, and we'll reconvene in the fall. It was my pleasure, Chris, and I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts in the meantime. Okay. <laughs> That was Dustin Mulvaney of San Jose State University. And now, our conversation with Sridhar Sitharaman and Adam Warren of the Colorado School of Mines. Joining us now are Sridhar Sitharaman, the Director of Advanced Energy Systems Graduate Program at the Colorado School of Mines, and Adam Warren, the Co-Director of the Advanced Energy Systems Graduate Program, a joint effort between the National Renewable Energy Laboratory and the Colorado School of Mines. So let's bring them into the conversation now. Welcome, gentlemen, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, you. Thanks for the invite, and congratulations on the 100th episode. I know. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it just came up so quickly, it seems like. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about your teaching in energy and how you're using the podcast. So what are the course topics that you cover? So the program as a whole for the advanced energy systems, it essentially teaches students of the ways in which energy is converted to power and fuels and how power and fuel is transported, distributed, and stored, and also at the end point of how it's used for various purposes. And the uniqueness of the program is that while it's covered from an engineering perspective, it's also heavily informed by economics and policy. Yeah, no, I'll add to that. The program is kicking off in the fall, and we plan, Chris, to use your podcast throughout. Great. I've had a little bit of experience using the Indy Transition Show in an undergraduate course that I was an adjunct professor for. Tim Ono at the Department of Physics at Mines leads this energy miner. And we used your course to introduce students to new topics. One aspect of the podcast that I found useful was to listen to your In the News segment. Huh. Kind of an opinionated In the News segment, and then we discuss. Okay. So it gave you some discussion topics there. Exactly. You know, things that you don't hear opinionated segments on Vogel or something like that <laughs> in textbooks. So we'd use those segments and then have a group discussion about them. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it continues to surprise me how people use that news segment stuff. Cool. So what is your hope that your students will get out of your program? So I think the ultimate hope is that we hope that we're educating sort of the future leaders of energy, future decision makers that end up in national labs or government or industry. So not only do they sort of know the technical engineering aspects of challenges in industry, but also the economic bandwidth of how to implement technologies and policy barriers and how to overcome them. So essentially to be able to make decisions that are based on sort of a multifacet of issues. 
Interesting. So you really are aiming to train the sort of the decision makers and the thought leaders of tomorrow. Exactly correct. Okay. Well, one thing we hope to do with this new program is give them in the first year the breadth of understanding of the energy transition that we're going through before they go and do the deep studies that you need to do and the focus that you need to do to get a PhD. Hmm. In that first year, they get experience not only at mines, but also they do a couple rotations through NREL. So they get to understand what the national lab looks like and the work that we do at the national lab with the private sector. So they get a pretty broad perspective before they go through their comprehensives and then get to work on their topic of choice. Interesting. I mean, that sort of answers one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which was why you created this program, because it seems like kind of a unique sort of an in-between step between undergrad and graduate. Is that fair? It is classically a graduate program. Okay. But I guess the first year, as Adam mentioned, is to broaden your view on multiple subjects. So it's sort of T-shaped in that we take students from a wide variety of backgrounds, everywhere from economics and policy, all the way to engineering to science. So the first year is essentially there to give everybody the breadth of the topics related to energy. And after that first year, it's a classical PhD, pretty much where you can dwell into the depth of your topic. The motivation of the program actually was, so I worked for the federal government before I came back to academia. And before that, I'd been a faculty for many, many years, but I knew my technical stuff pretty well. But when I worked for DOE, I was sort of asked to make decisions based on a number of topics. But I sort of realized that while I knew how to make decisions based on technical or scientific matters, I hadn't quite trained myself in terms of assessing the rate of return or capital investment or policy issues related to those decisions. Mm. So that's kind of where the idea was born as far as I'm concerned, for me at least, in terms of this should really be incorporated into the modern engineering education. Because once you're a decision maker, then a lot of things depend on not just energy and science, but also other aspects such as economy and policy. Yeah, absolutely. Why do you think your students take the energy classes? Like, what makes them interested in it? You know, I think definitely the students today uh, get into the field of energy are interested in sort of emerging global grand challenges. Sustainability and uh, carbon footprint and climate change being one. But also, you know, how does society respond to things like electrification? As electricity from renewables starts to achieve a great parity, then how do we respond to that as a society? So, you know, I think the questions are far reaching and have effects on generations to come. And these things interest a lot of the incoming grad students. Yeah, I'm impressed by the students that we have coming in in the fall. I'd say first and foremost, probably climate change is the motivating factor. And they're pretty sophisticated in their understanding, or many of them are, about where we are and how quickly we have to go. Hmm. And I think the other side of that coin is they also see that this is a huge segment of our economy that's transitioning, and there are ample opportunities for interesting careers in this field. Hmm. I think that's correct. And from the students that we've talked to, Almost all of them have an interest in not just the depth of a certain technical area, but they sort of want to learn how it plays a role in the context of a system as a whole or society as a whole. And, you know, the traditional technical PhDs don't necessarily allow for that. So I think that's an aspect that's very unique in this program. Mm-hmm. 
So what are the, some of the challenges you've discovered? Like what topics or concepts do students find difficult to understand? Topics that students find difficult to understand, I guess usually you can suggest a technical solution and carry out experiments to sort of validate your hypothesis. But if you ask them, what would it take to deploy this technology? You know, how much investment does it take? What's the risk involved? What are the uncertainties? And how do you get to the next stage, essentially, to a higher technology readiness level? To assessing those kind of things, they do have a problem. And I think a lot of us do. So that's one of the things that we want to overcome with this program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think getting wrapping your head around the magnitude of, of the challenge and that, as Sridhar mentioned before, the technology is obviously an important part of it, but that's just one aspect of, of solving the climate change problem. A number of students will come in with maybe a technical background, but to help them understand the policy, the market side, takes some work. Particularly if you're talking about the power sector, we've got a number, you know, we've got the three grids in the U.S. and a number of different policies across the U.S. Just to understand those takes some time, and then you need to do the same thing internationally. So it's a challenge, but that also makes it interesting. Yeah, I think also there's that two-way coupling between policy and technology. So, you know, on one hand, policies help to guide where technology goes often or sometimes, Mm -hmm. but it's also the other way around. You know, once you invent a technical solution or a technical invention, you can't uninvent it, and that drives policy. As an example, the horizontal drill whether you're for it or not, once it's invented, it changed our energy policy. Yeah. So it's a one-way stream in terms of you invent a technology and what consequences does that have on policy, right? So I think that connection is an interesting thing to introduce into the graduate education. Yeah, I think you're both highlighting something that's always interested me about this energy transition topic, which is it sort of falls between the classic domains of sort of engineering and mathematics and that kind of thing, and the policy world and the world of political economy. Mm-hmm. I think just because of the nature of the Colorado School of Mines and NREL, you know, you guys are going to see technically minded students, you're going to see engineering students that need to branch out into the business and the political and the economic domains. I also wonder how it is for students that are coming from those domains trying to get their heads around the engineering stuff. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And mine's being classically a strong kind of STEM-based college. Yeah. We do have a minimum requirement for quantitative skills. So it's not that we require everybody to have an engineering degree or a science degree, but if you come from a non-STEM undergraduate education, you're welcome to join the program as long as you can demonstrate that you have the required sort of math knowledge, statistics knowledge to carry out some of the core classes. Yeah. I think that's why we need more programs like this to jumpstart thought leaders into understanding not just the technical aspect with this integration with policy markets and business models. Yeah. You know, a number of us did the technical side and then through our careers kind of figured out the rest of this. It's nice to be able to serve it up to them in their graduate program so they can see some of that breadth and then hopefully they're ahead of us when they go into their careers. Yeah, but it also allows us to kind of create a unique environment for education. So, you know, for example, Adam developed this um, problem for restoring power for an island that lost its power because of a natural disaster. And now you imagine that you have a group project like that, but you work alongside economists, political scientists, and engineers and 
scientists to solve that problem jointly you know that it sort of replicates the real world much more than just having a bunch of engineer or scientists dealing with it on one side or economists dealing with it on the other mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so what do you think the biggest misconceptions are about energy that your students have well, I guess it's the first cohort we're taking in, and I don't think necessarily that the quality of these students will have many misconceptions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're already sort of top A students from top schools, so right. their misconceptions might be less than mine. <laughs> but <laughs> overall, there are, I think, certain misconceptions such as, these are kind of my opinions, but, you know, for example, energy is never lost. It's always converted from one form to the other, right? Right. So when you talk about energy loss, energy loss, it's scientifically kind of a wrong conception. And I also feel that renewables have made such a penetration into the market that comeback for coal, for example, is just not economically viable anymore. Mm. So you have to find other solutions for that, maybe providing backup power to renewables. But it's a myth, I think, to imagine that it's going to make a comeback in terms of having a big portion of the energy pie. So these are things that might be misconceptions, but I don't think the incoming class in this course are going to have many of those. I think that's a great example because the first example you gave, Sridhar, points to the need to just sort of understand the first law of thermodynamics, Correct, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then the second point you made is not about thermodynamics at all. It's about political economy. You know, it's about right. the distinction between what you hear from politicians trying to prop up the coal industry versus people who operate the grid and you're immediately neck deep in the weeds when you try to understand that because you have to understand things like capacity factor and grid balancing and the relative cost of fuels and marginal pricing and all this other stuff that just is well beyond the can of most people involved in the policy space. But anyway, go ahead, Adam. What are your thoughts there? I was just going to say, I think one of the aha moments I've seen with the undergraduate students that I was teaching and in conversation with some of these graduate students that are going to be coming into this program is the speed of the transition we're undergoing right now. I think people don't quite understand how much we're changing and how quickly we're going to see solar be, for example, the low-cost energy source in most places. And what's that going to do to the marketplace? Hmm. What is that going to do to the utility business models? Hmm. I think those of us who eat and breathe this stuff and think about it all the time, I understand we are going through a transition, but a lot of the students I've talked with kind of see this state we're in now is the state we'll we'll stay in, but hopefully we can help them understand and be able to affect this transition. Hmm. So how have the students responded to the show so far, Adam? They enjoy it. It's something different. Not all of them are into podcasts, so it's a new way for them to get introduced to topics. As I mentioned, we enjoyed using the In the News segment to spur or start conversations And those topics are things you wouldn't get out of a textbook. So it's been a positive one. I think we'll learn and hopefully we'll continue to work with you as we use this podcast for the graduate program. And we'll talk to you about how we're using it and hopefully it can be of use to others trying to teach these topics. Yeah, well, a couple things I always wonder, like when I'm putting the show together and I'm wondering like how people will use this. I wonder if people find the geek rating useful in terms of selecting things to listen to. And I'm also wondering if they really use the show notes because I put a lot of work into developing the show notes, like there's a little mini bibliography for every single episode. So I'm hoping that researchers or students who are just curious about this stuff will open those links up and do some further reading. 
Oh, most definitely. We use them as pre-reads for the classes. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yes. Oh, Not all of them, obviously, because some of them are pretty detailed. Yeah. I would look through them and pick out a couple that I thought were appropriate for the level, and we'll continue to do that in the graduate program. Huh. One thing that could be useful is you might consider either a separate feed or a bookmark. So if you want to just jump to the In the News segment, you make that easy to do for listeners. Oh, that's an interesting suggestion. All right. Well, this has been very helpful, actually. I've learned a couple of things already about how to improve the show. <laughs> so <laughs> that's great. Is there anything else you guys want to add before we go? I don't think I have anything. Okay. No. Congrats again on 100 episodes and keep fighting the good fight. All right. Definitely. <laughs> Thanks very much, gentlemen. All right. Have a good day. I want to thank our guests for so generously offering their time and insights to help us demonstrate the value of the Energy Transition Show as an educational tool. So once again, my huge thanks to David Murphy of St. Lawrence University, Costa Samaras of Carnegie Mellon University, Dustin Mulvaney of San Jose State University, and Sridhar Sitaraman and Adam Warren of the Colorado School of Mines. And if you would like to use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, or just make it available to your colleagues at work or at your academic institution, it's really easy to do. Just go to energytransitionshow.com slash group options and use our simple online application to get the process started. We offer both bulk licenses and site licenses, so there's a subscription option appropriate for everyone, and it's very affordable on par with other academic journals licensed by universities. We'd love for our show to be used by everyone teaching energy transition, so please feel free to email us with any questions at support at energytransitionshow.com. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of all the people who have assembled here, I would merely like to mention, if I may, that our unanimous attitude is one of lasting gratitude for what our friend has done for us today. Therefore, I would simply like to say Thank you very much, thank you very much That's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me I makes a lovely touch, but my delight is such I feel as if a losing war's been won for me And if I had a flag, I'd hang me flag out That's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me. It sounds a bit bizarre, but things the way they are, I feel as if another life's begun for me. And if I had a plan that I would fire it, to add a sort of celebration Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
Quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. On June 18th, New York passed a law creating the most ambitious state climate target in the U.S., aiming for 100% carbon-free electricity by 2040 and net-zero carbon emissions economy-wide by 2050. In doing so, the state joins California, Colorado, Hawaii, Maine, New Mexico, New Jersey, Oregon, Puerto Rico, Washington, D.C., and Washington State in setting ambitious clean energy policies and RPS standards. And in late June, billionaire and philanthropist Michael Bloomberg launched Beyond Carbon, the largest ever coordinated campaign against climate change in the United States. Beyond Carbon is working with advocates around the country to maximize the progress on climate change and get the country on the path to a 100% clean energy economy. Item 2. Several new low-price records for solar projects were set in recent auctions around the world. In Los Angeles, the Department of Water and Power presented to its board a proposal for a solar plus storage project at just under $0.02 per kilowatt hour for the solar and $0.13 for the storage. Rock-bottom prices that are not only far cheaper than any other energy technology could be in Southern California, but prices that would beat out the previous U.S. record of $0.38 proposed by Envy Energy a year ago. In Brazil, Enerlife won a bid in the A4 auction for a concentrating solar PV project at $16.95 US per megawatt hour, or about 1.7 cents per kilowatt hour, $2 per megawatt hour lower than the Pachamama project in Mexico, which set a world record in 2017 at $18.93 per megawatt hour. As a whole, the auction booked about half a billion dollars in investment, with average sale prices of $39.20 per megawatt hour, or about four U.S. cents per kilowatt hour. And although it isn't a low-price record, the newer Abu Dhabi solar PV plant in United Arab Emirates deserves mention here too, because they have actually completed and put into operation the largest single solar plant in the world, a 1.2 gigawatt, $871 million plant, which was built on time and which will deliver power for 24 years at under 3 cents per kilowatt hour. Item 3. Several car brands in the Volkswagen Group have made recent investments in micromobility and said in a July 3rd group posting that, quote, answers are needed to avoid the threat of traffic collapse on the one hand and to meet the changing demands of modern mobility on the other. The group's recent product launches include the three-wheel city skater scooter from Volkswagen, an e-bike from Skoda, a micro car from Seat, and an e-scooter from Audi. The Volkswagen City Skater is a three-wheeled scooter with a low platform on which the rider stands while straddling a control rod operated at waist level, which has a 350-watt motor with 15 kilometers of range and a top speed of 20 kilometers per hour. And the new VW Streetmate, a large-format e-scooter which the company is pitching as a last-mile solution, features a wide platform, a large front wheel, and a conventional set of handlebars, which has a range of 60 kilometers. VW has also unveiled a tilting cargo bike concept bike that's expected to enter the cargo bike market before the end of this year. According to a statement issued by the group, they see micromobility as a significant part of the future, predicting that commuters will switch from cars to smart micromobiles, especially as cities remove curbside parking spaces and contemplate outright car bans. 
And be sure, of course, to log into their website, as always, to see the show notes for this episode and check out the links on all these interesting little micromobility solutions. And now to wrap up the news for this episode, another edition of Cold Death Watch. Item four, Black Jewel and its affiliate Revelation Energy filed for bankruptcy on July 1st, making them the latest of a series of coal producers in the U.S. to do so. Black Jewel owns and operates the Bell Air and Eagle Butte mines, respectively the fourth and fifth most productive mines in the Powder River Basin in Wyoming. The company blamed a liquidity crisis for its troubles, but as Rockstar coal reporter Taylor Kukendall, who you will remember from episode 81, detailed in a series of articles on the bankruptcy, the company owes significant debts to a variety of federal government organizations in the U.S., including $60 million to the Interior Department alone, and has long depended on a series of questionable loans, made a bad bet on metallurgical coal, and clearly failed to position itself to pay off numerous obligations, including workers' compensation. A bankruptcy reorganization plan approved by a federal judge on July 3rd was contingent upon the resignation of the company's CEO, Jeffrey Hoops, as well as any members of his family involved in the companies. Black Jewel has withheld $1.2 million in employee paychecks, designed for 401k retirement account contributions, but failed to actually deposit the monies in those accounts, and additionally has failed to deposit another $900,000 in matching contributions. 600 employees were abruptly sent home, and the fate of their jobs and retirement accounts hangs in limbo as of this recording, although much will have surely happened by the time this episode airs in this fast-moving story. And finally, item five. Chubb, the world's largest publicly traded property and casualty insurance company and the market leader in insuring the U.S. power sector, announced on July 1st that it would stop insuring and investing in coal-fired power plants or companies that generate more than 30% of their revenues from coal. Insurance coverage it now writes for existing coal plants and utilities that exceed this threshold will be phased out by 2022. The company and its subsidiaries currently invest at least $2.9 billion in fossil fuel companies and has come under increasing pressure from members of the Insure Our Future campaign, according to that organization's press release. The group aims to stop the U.S. insurance industry from insuring and investing in coal and tar sands projects and companies. Evan Greenberg, chairman and CEO of Chubb, said, quote, Chubb recognizes the reality of climate change and the substantial impact of human activity on our planet. Making the transition to a low-carbon economy involves planning and action by policymakers, investors, businesses, and citizens alike. The policy we are implementing today reflects Chubb's commitment to do our part as a steward of the earth. In closing, thanks to all of you for supporting the show. Since we are entirely subscriber-supported, it could not exist without you. Be sure to check out the interview transcripts, which are typically uploaded a week or two after each episode, and our extensive show notes, which include links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. And thanks to all of you who write to share your feedback on the show and your suggestions for future shows. I am continually honored, humbled, and encouraged by the incredible email I get from you, and I want you to know that it is truly appreciated. To reach me with show feedback or ideas, just use the comment form on 
any show page or email me directly at chris at energytransitionshow.com. Finally, help us build our audience. People like you aren't easy to find, and we have learned that most of our subscribers discover us via word of mouth. So please tell your friends and colleagues about the show and leave us a review on iTunes, which is where most people discover new podcasts. And if you think your company, nonprofit, or university would benefit from a site license that gives everyone an annual subscription, just drop us a line. We have very competitively priced group discounts and an easy way to enroll everyone. And thank you for spreading the word. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. Thank you.